Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. Scripture reading today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Marsha. Morning, church. It is good to see you all today. My name is Pete, and I'm one of the pastors here. And especially if you're new with us or just visiting, we are really glad to have you with us today. Um, Today's the first Sunday of Lent, which is uh, the season in the historic Christian calendar that we started just a few days ago on Ash Wednesday, and will lead us all the way up to Good Friday and ultimately Easter Sunday, which is exactly six weeks from today. Uh, By the way, I still can't believe that you all came for Ash Wednesday. Uh, We had standing room only here on Wednesday night, um, which is just insane that you guys would carve out that much time to come contemplate your sin and mortality. Um, It's pretty strange. So you may want to make some friends or something, but um, it uh, it was great to be together. Um, We're going to be in the Gospels for the next uh, six Sundays, and mostly we'll be in the Gospel of John, but this morning we'll be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, looking at the story of Jesus testing in the wilderness. Um, This is a crucial moment in the story of Jesus' life and mission, and if you want to understand Jesus, then you need to understand this story. So we'll go to Matthew 4, and we'll walk through it verse by verse. Matthew 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So here's the setting. Throughout the story of the Bible, the wilderness is a place of temptation and testing. This is a picture that I took in the Judean wilderness on my first trip to Israel. This is the place where this story happens, where Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights by himself Um, Nothing but nothing, as far as the eye can see. 
completely bare and desolate, just to kind of give you a mental picture of what we're talking about. So, by the way, we're going to Israel again next year. We're taking a group in May of 2024. So uh, we'll have more info for you soon, but you, uh, you should start thinking about it. And it's expensive, but you've got over a year to start saving. The wilderness is one of the most prominent motifs throughout the scripture. From Abraham and Moses to Jesus and the apostles, some of the most significant events in the biblical story happen in the wilderness. Because no one goes into the wilderness and comes out the same. And some of us know that all too well from our own stories. We've walked through those gnarly and painful seasons of suffering or loss or emptiness. Our faith goes through the wilderness. Our marriage goes through the wilderness. Our health goes through the wilderness. And it's no fun, but it's where God does some of his best work. Because even though the wilderness appears empty, it's actually full of God. Which is why all throughout the Gospels we see Jesus returning to the wilderness time and time again. He wakes up early in the morning and he goes into the wilderness. He leaves his disciples and he goes into the wilderness. He slips away from the crowds and he goes into the wilderness. And so for Jesus, the wilderness isn't a place to avoid, but it's a place to pursue. Which makes a little bit more sense out of how Jesus ended up in the wilderness in the first place in our story today. Because we know he went there to be tested by the devil, but it wasn't the devil that led him there. Look again at what Matthew says. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. This isn't what we usually picture when we talk about being Spirit-led. But apparently, sometimes when you say yes to the Holy Spirit, you end up being led into the wilderness. So just like it was God who led the Israelites out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into the desert, it was the Spirit of God who led Jesus through his baptism in the Jordan River and out into the wilderness. So this is, by the way, where the tradition of Lent comes from, following Jesus through his 40 days in the desert. Why do we do it? Because the wilderness isn't a place to avoid, it's a place to pursue. It appears empty, but it's actually full of God. So that's where this story takes place. Now, what's Jesus doing in the wilderness? Verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. (laughs) I love this. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Really. (laughs) After fasting 40 days, he was hungry? (laughs) Like, after rolling in the mud, he was dirty. After swimming in the pool, he was wet. After giving up on his dreams, he went to Baylor. Just all these things that are so... (laughs) Just had to. So, Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days. He's hungry, and that's when the test begins. By the way, test really is a better translation than temptation. When we use the word temptation, we're typically talking about the urge to do something wrong or sinful, but that's not really what's happening here. What's happening in this story is more like a, tempt- like a testing than a tempting. So 
uh, most of us, I assume, don't really enjoy taking tests, right? In fact, I still have the occasional nightmare that I'm in high school and I show up for class and don't know that there's a test. Um, and the reason we don't like tests is not just because they can be hard, but because a good test reveals the truth. That's the whole point of a test, to show you what's actually there. So in school, the reason teachers give tests is to find out what the student actually knows. It may look like the student is paying attention and getting it, but if you want to know what they're really learning, then you give them a test and find out the truth. So tests reveal reality, which is why even though most of us don't enjoy taking tests, we're glad that tests exist in the world. I'm glad that airplane parts get tested. I'm glad that elevators get tested. I'm glad that we can get our blood tested and find out what's going on inside our bodies. A good test reveals the truth. And so even though it's the devil who's administering this test, it was the Holy Spirit that mandated it. Why? The purpose of this test is to reveal the truth about the kingdom Jesus is getting ready to inaugurate. God knows that there are going to be all kinds of distortions and perversions of his kingdom on earth. And so Jesus, led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to undergo this test so that the truth and beauty of his kingdom will be revealed. So as we look at these three temptations, I want you to see these three truths about the kingdom of Jesus. And what will quickly become clear is that Jesus' temptations are also our temptations. So the first temptation is in verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, so remember, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, and he's hungry. Well, probably hangry, if we're honest, right? And the tempter comes and says, if you really are the son of God, then why don't you use your God powers to transform these rocks into food? Of course you're miserable. You're starving. So get yourself some food. Now, again, this isn't a temptation to do anything wrong or sinful, It's probably a good idea for Jesus to eat something. And if he really does have the power to make bread out of stones, then he could not only feed himself, but he could feed a lot of other hungry people in the world too. But look how Jesus responds. He quotes this obscure verse from the book of Deuteronomy that says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the first thing I want you to see is this. If you remember two weeks ago, we talked about the centrality of the scriptures in Jesus' life and ministry. And it doesn't get much clearer than this. In each of the three temptations Jesus faces in the desert, he appeals to the scriptures both as his ethical compass and as his spiritual authority. So again, if you follow Jesus, you can't get rid of the Bible. But the main thing I want you to see is this, that when Jesus responds to the temptation, his response reveals to us what's really being proposed. Remember, the purpose of each of these tests is to reveal the nature of his kingdom. And the first test is the temptation to make the kingdom of God about bread alone. 
It's the idea that Jesus' highest priority in ministry is meeting physical needs. It's the idea that feeding the hungry, caring for the poor, and healing bodies are the only things that matter. It's the idea that the kingdom of God can be reduced to the pursuit of social justice. Now, if you know anything about Jesus, you know that he's all about justice for the poor. He's all about liberation for the oppressed. He's all about healing for the sick. He performs all kinds of miraculous signs throughout his ministry, making the blind see, making the crippled walk, healing people of leprosy and other diseases. The kingdom of God is all about alleviating human suffering and, and meeting people's physical needs. But that's not the only thing it's about. He says man shall not live on bread alone. His kingdom is about more than feeding the hungry. Or you could say it this way. Jesus' kingdom is about souls, not just bodies. Jesus' kingdom is about souls, not just bodies. So the first temptation is to make the kingdom of God solely about social justice and meeting physical needs. In other words, it's the temptation to skip the first commandment and go straight to the second. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with everything you've got, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. To make Jesus' kingdom only about bodies and not about souls is to try to love your neighbor without loving God first. To give your life to social justice and serving people's physical needs is a good thing. But it's not the only thing in the kingdom of God. You've got the kingdom of God, but you don't have God's king. Again, does Jesus care about meeting physical needs? Does he care about social justice? Does he care about alleviating suffering? Of course he does. One time in John's gospel, Jesus makes enough food to feed a crowd of over 5,000 people. And the next time he gets up to speak, even more people are there. Everyone's stoked about the free bread. But then they ask him to do it again. And what does he say? John 6, 51, Jesus says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. The bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So when they ask for more bread, Jesus tells them to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Why? Because people don't live on bread alone. Jesus himself is the true bread that their souls need. So, Jesus' kingdom is about souls, not just bodies. That's the truth that's revealed by temptation number one. Let's look at the second temptation in verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And what a strange temptation. What would be the point of Jesus throwing himself off the temple and commanding his angels 
to save him? Why would he be tempted to do such a thing? Well, if you think about it, the only reason he would do that would be to draw a crowd and go viral and convince all the masses to come and follow him. If he really wanted to prove to the watching world that he was the son of God, and if he wanted to win 10,000 souls overnight, this would be a great way to do it. Can you imagine if everyone in Jerusalem were to witness this supernatural thing, all the skeptics, all the doubters, all the atheists, all the kings, all the rulers would all become followers of Jesus, which sounds like a pretty great thing, right? But again, Jesus discerns that to give in to this temptation would be to compromise the character of his kingdom. If the first temptation was to make the kingdom of God only about bodies, then the second temptation is the inverse, to make the kingdom of God only about souls. So here's the truth that's revealed in the second temptation. Jesus' kingdom is about bodies, not just souls. First it was about souls, not just bodies. Now it's about bodies, not just souls. So yes, Jesus cares about the internal, immaterial, spiritual, eternal parts of our being. He wants to save our souls. But that's not the only thing he cares about. He also cares about the external, material, physical part of us, and he wants everyone on earth to have everything they need. Yeah, he told people to drink his blood and eat his flesh, but only after he fed them a meal. So this is the temptation to make the kingdom of God only about the quote-unquote spiritual. It's the idea that Jesus' only priority is saving souls for eternity. It's the idea that feeding the hungry and caring for the poor is great, but what's the point if they're still dead in their sins? It's the idea that the kingdom of God can be reduced down to a personal relationship with Jesus that's primarily about my spiritual experience and personal growth. In this case, you've got the king, but you don't have the kingdom. Or it's the temptation to keep the first commandment without keeping the second, to try to love God without loving neighbor which of course misses everything the Bible teaches about how God's people are to live. From the very first pages of scripture, humanity is introduced into the story as those who bear the image of God. So every single human life matters and every single person deserves to have their needs met and cared for and their dignity honored. You can't do the first commandment if you aren't going to do the second. And this is what John, one of Jesus' first disciples, would later write. Whoever does not love their brothers and sister whom they, can, whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So that's the truth revealed in the second temptation. Jesus' kingdom is about bodies, not just souls. Let's move on to the third. In verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. 
All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Now, this one's always been fascinating to me. Because what is it that the devil is offering to Jesus? All the kingdoms of the world. The offer is that Jesus becomes king of the universe. The kingdoms of the world in all their splendor. Well, what's wrong with that? Isn't that exactly why Jesus came? To become king of the world? Isn't that what we want for every knee to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord? For all authority in heaven and on earth to be given to him? Isn't that what he wants? What's the problem? Of course we would want Jesus to be king. Well, the problem is revealed in Jesus' response in verse 10. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So what would be the problem with Jesus taking the devil up on this deal? The problem is that Jesus would have been king of the world, but he also would have been a Satan worshiper. Instead of worshiping the one true God and serving him only, Jesus would have had to bow down and worship the devil. That's not the only issue Jesus is facing in this temptation because, yes, the mission of God is to appoint Jesus as king over all creation and to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth to himself through Christ. So the end goal of the kingdom of God is that Christ would be king. That is the end goal. So if Jesus is going to end up as king of the world, does it matter how it happens? So what if he has to make a few compromises along the way? Isn't that it happens more important than how it happens? Apparently not to Jesus. Here's the truth about God that's revealed in this temptation. Jesus' kingdom is about means, not just ends. Jesus' kingdom is about means, not just ends. In the kingdom of God, the way things are done matters. And specifically, the way Jesus become king, becomes king matters. Even at this point in the story, before he's launched his public ministry, Jesus knows the path that's before him. He knows of the suffering that he is going to endure. And so this temptation was to become king, but to skip the cross. This temptation was to avoid suffering and to avoid death and to go straight to the glory. But the kingdom of God is about means, not just ends. The way things are done matters. And Jesus resists the temptation. Instead of going the way of the devil, the way of the sword, the way of violence, and force, Jesus embraces the way of the cross, the way of suffering, sacrifice, and love. Jesus refuses to do the right thing in the wrong way. In his kingdom, the ends never justify the means. It's not just what we do, but it's the way we do it that matters. And the way of Jesus is always the way of the cross, the way of humility, 
the way of sacrifice, the way of love. Later on in Matthew's gospel, we see this truth about his kingdom fleshed out in real life. In Matthew 16, Peter, the disciple of Jesus, has just professed professed his faith that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus tells him what's about to happen. Matthew 16, 21, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Here's what's happening. Peter's having, his, having a hard time wrapping his mind around the idea that if Jesus really is God's Messiah, God's anointed one to rescue the people of Israel, why is he saying that he has to die? Messiahs don't die. That's crazy. Haven't you read Psalm 2? Didn't you listen to Jer's sermon last week? (laughs) Messiahs don't die. See, Peter gets the end of the story, but he doesn't like the means to the end. He doesn't like that Jesus has to die to become king. So he says, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is exactly the kind of moment that Jesus testing in the wilderness had prepared him for he immediately recognized when someone thought that the ends could justify the means in the kingdom of God, and he calls that person Satan. And what I've noticed is that the devil still tempts us in the same way today. A couple of years ago, in the middle of the pandemic, when everybody was fighting about masks and vaccines and social distancing. And we know the state put some restrictions in place that affected how churches um, were supposed to gather. And if you remember, there were lots of Christians that felt like their religious freedom was being attacked or that the government was trying to shut down the churches or that they were being persecuted for their faith. And it was a rough time to be a pastor. (laughs) Uh, Thankfully, I've got a couple really good pastor friends at other churches here in town. And throughout 2020 and 2021, we got together regularly to (laughs) commiserate and to share stories. And I remember one of my pastor friends had some guys in his church that came up to him during that time and asked him, Pastor, at what point do we as the church take up arms against the government? Like, how much more overstep are we going to take before we lock and load and really do something about it? And my friend answered, never. At no point will the church of Jesus take up arms and do violence in his name. That's never the Jesus way. And so my pastor friend's telling me this story, and I thought it's, he gave the perfect answer. And was exactly right. And he asked me, do you, guys, do you guys struggle with that kind of thing at Antioch? Do you have people like that? And I'm like, no, nah, it must just be a riverbend thing. 
<laughs> I'm kidding. It wasn't River Bend. We love those guys. It was West Side. <clears throat> it wasn't. It wasn't. It's right to want to protect and defend Christ's church. But the way we would do that matters. Obviously, throughout history, much violence has been done in the name of Christianity. But it's not of Jesus. It's of the devil. The way of Jesus is always the way of the cross, not the sword. And no matter what the government or anyone else does to us, Christ's church can never resort to using violence in his name. Now, that doesn't mean we just passively stand by and do whatever they tell us to do. It doesn't even necessarily mean that we'll always comply with government restrictions. Sometimes faithfulness to Jesus requires the church to break the law. But when we do, we'll do it in the way of Jesus, which is the way of nonviolent resistance and co-suffering love. In other words, it's always okay to die for Christ. It's never okay to kill for Christ. Jesus' kingdom is about means, not just ends. And for Jesus, the way he became king mattered. And if he would have chosen the way of the sword instead of the way of the cross, he would have been a devil worshiper. Let's finish up verse 11. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Jesus wins. He resists the devil, and the devil flees from him. And of course, from here, Jesus would go on to establish the kingdom of God on earth, a kingdom that's about the whole person, body and soul, and about the whole world coming under the rule of Christ, not through violence and coercion, but through self-sacrifice and co-suffering love. That's the Jesus way. But there's one more thing I want us to ponder before we close. When we talk about the way of Jesus, we're not just talking about Jesus as a teacher or as a role model. We're talking about Jesus himself as the way, with a capital W. Jesus claimed that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus doesn't just show us the way. He is the way for us. And not only is he the way we come to God, he's the way God comes to us. So let's open ourselves to receive God in Christ again today. And may we be empowered by the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus and led him into the wilderness. May we be empowered to resist the devil and to walk with God and to worship him alone. Sean's gonna come and lead us to the table.